Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. Welcome back for Tuesday Talks. We made it to 2021. Happy New Year to everyone. I'm excited to see y'all's faces. I've missed the music. I've missed the conversations. And uh, I hope that you all are as excited as I am uh, for today's topic. Um, so for those who are new, welcome. Uh, for those who are coming back, I missed you, and it's good to see you again. Um, the CARE Atlanta Global Innovation Hub convenes people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates spaces, programs, and support systems that we hope will connect leaders with global practitioners who are looking to solve the world's most pressing problems. Tuesday Talks was created to build bridges by exploring compelling topics. We hope that each week our participants leave with a deeper understanding of the topics and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we believe in the leadership of women, and we especially look to highlight expertise from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. We're committed to centering and uplifting all justice-centered voices in our conversations and programming. With so much going on uh, in the U.S. and around the world today in terms of social and political unrest, uh, our discussion today will focus on reconciliation and how it might lead to bridge the divisiveness in our country, in our communities, and in other parts of our world. Uh, in its most general sense, reconciliation uh, refers to a condition of nonviolent, mutually acceptable coexistence where former adversaries uh, can re-envision one, one another as fellow citizens. And although rec uh, reconciliation may take many different forms around the world, we believe that it pushes our collective society to break through hard truths in order to create a more unified world. So today I want to introduce you to an incredible lineup of speakers who will talk to us about uh, reconciliation in different contexts and hopefully give us a message of hope uh, and advisement as we all march forward. First, let me introduce you to Dr. Gloria Ayi. Dr. Ayi is a political scientist and lecturer in the Department of Government at Harvard University and a faculty associate at the Carr Center for Human Rights at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Dr. Ayi specializes in American politics, comparative politics, race and ethnic politics, and behavior and identity politics. Her research focuses primarily on truth and reconciliation commissions, transitional justice, and human rights issues. Dr. Ayi, thank you for being with us. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to join you and see um, people from all over the world. So I'm really honored to be here. Thank you. We're looking forward to hearing and learning from you. Next, let me introduce you to Aisha Daifan. Uh, Aisha is the former director of international advocacy at Amnesty International, an international human rights organization headquartered in London. This responsibility included engagement on human rights issues at all levels in the multilateral and plurilateral systems. Before joining Amnesty in April 2008, Aisha was the chief of the human rights section in the United Nations hybrid, oh, oper, oper, hybrid operation excuse me, in Darfur where she served for four and a half years before retiring at the level of director. She is a barrister at law and educated in Sierra Leone in the UK, where she studied history and law respectively. During her more than 30 year professional career, Ms. Aisha has developed expertise on thematic issues ranging from good governance, human rights and humanitarian law, and is also a specialist on women, peace and security issues. Aisha, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Next, I'll introduce you to Maria Amelia Correa. Maria Amelia is an entrepreneur committed to creating, and, uh, creating a regenerative, regenerative and inclusive economy. 
co-founder of Systema B and 2019 fellow of Advanced Leadership Initiative at Harvard University. She's a member of the board at Grupo uh, uh, Corpora and Grupo Colombun in Chile, the Humanitarian Quality Assurance Initiative, HQAI in Switzerland, and Fundacion Bancolombia, considered one of the 30 most influential intellectuals in Latin America in 2017 by Escobar. She began her professional life in conservation of natural resources and was, first, and was the first vice president of sustainability in a multinational uh, in Latin America. After a successful career with multinational companies in 2012, as she became an entrepreneur and joined a movement to promote B Corps, uh, those that use the power of the market to solve social and environmental problems. Maria Emilia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me here, Ryan. A pleasure to be here. Thank you, thank you. Uh, so let's get right to it. Um, we, we typically start our Tuesday talks by asking uh, the same question for everyone. So we wanna hear from each of our speakers uh, about the communities that you call home on the communities that you're working for and on behalf of. So let's go in reverse order. Let's go Maria Emilia, Aisha, and Dr. Ayi. So first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to this panel, for allowing me to share with these wonderful women in the panel, and for being able to be here and meeting old friends and new friends. It's, it's a pleasure to see so many faces around this, this Zoom talk. Um, so, I would like to talk about Colombia, my home country. That's, that's where, I, where I call home. And as many of you may know, Colombia started a peace process after a 50 year old, really devastating war. And after the war, when you work on building peace, you find that you need to collaborate with people who were your enemies, people you don't like, people you don't trust, you know, because Peace requires that we build communities in disagreement. It's not a, peace is not necessarily a, a paradise where we all agree and have a consensus around basically anything, you know? Peace is just the ability to live together in diversity and with disagreement. So my conversation today is part of my personal journey to understand how to collaborate in what is a very polarized world all around the world, but particularly in, in a country in, in war like Colombia, and, and how to learn to collaborate when we have no consensus on values or, or worldviews or, or motivations, right? So that's for an introduction. Thank you. Fantastic. Aisha, what about you? What communities do you represent? What communities do you call home? My community um, is Sierra Leone. I'm sort of permanently resident in the US, but um, I'm a Sierra Leonean and I've spent most of my life in Sierra Leone except working abroad. And so my community is Sierra Leone, wherever Sierra Leoneans are, where I work as well. And I want to recall um, that I've been a long life um, women's rights activist in Sierra Leone and particularly so during the conflict and post-conflict. So wherever I've been, I've tried to advance women's participation in public life. Um, I started my activism in school and university, um, but I think it matured with the war where um, the women's movement of which I was a part and a leader 
um, tried to make peace, uh, as, as, as my colleague is saying there, um, with your enemies. But the women's movement was the critical part of, of the peace process in Sierra Leone and helped bring peace. And I've worked through um, my, my professional life and my legal life trying to, to make peace and making sure that women are central to um, post-conflict reconstruction and rehabilitation. And I was lucky to work in the United Nations where I also used my experience in Syria to influence um, processes abroad. Fantastic. Thank you for that. And thank you for, uh, for all your contributions. We're excited to, to hear and learn more from you. Dr. Ayi, what about you? What communities do you call home? What communities are you advocating with and for? Uh, how do you see that fitting into your work? Uh, this is a great question and one I often find uh, quite difficult to answer. I consider myself a global citizen, um, um, just broadly speaking, but I am a uh, naturalized American um, citizen. I am a Ghanaian American. So my family is originally from Ghana in West Africa, but I uh, grew up in Ghana, Kenya, and um, South Africa. Um, my formative years um, were spent in um, South Africa during the end of apartheid to the transition period. And so much of my work um, on uh, transitional justice, truth and reconciliation projects is kind of um, developed from the experiences my family had in, in South Africa during the apartheid era. And so I'm not a human rights practitioner, but I do research and teach on issues related to human rights and uh, transitional justice, like I mentioned. And so I'm always interested in these types of projects globally. Fantastic. So maybe let's pick up from that point. So you've kind of, uh, you bring these lived experiences, uh, to your point, from uh, different global contexts. And now you're working here in the U.S. and focusing on U.S. politics and kind of the, the broader political reconciliation process. Can you give us some context for um, maybe the history of political reconciliation, a very brief kind of version of that? and how we might adopt that to the U.S. context or to other places uh, that are on that path now. Sure. Um, you gave a really excellent definition of uh, political reconciliation, so I won't repeat it, but I would just like to expand on it a little bit. Um, when we're talking about political reconciliation, we're talking about the ways in which um, people of different communities can come together um, to live peaceably um, obey the rule of law, um, find ways to work mutually. Um, and often when we're talking about reconciliation, we're, we're thinking about um, societies in which there has been some sort of conflict or tension. And so there's the hope that different communities are able to actually work together after that conflict um, for the good of all. And so it often involves um, putting aside past wrongs, um, they're, they're often perpetrators of, of human rights violations, of violence against different communities. And so it often involves finding a way to move forward beyond that and working together as, as members of the community in order to um, live um, peacefully in, in the society. So what we often see is 
having to find this balance between holding people accountable for harms against different communities, but also finding a way to either forgive and possibly um, forget some elements of what happened in the past, not to say that it, it becomes an issue of um, not holding um, um, perpetrators accountable, but often in order to achieve reconciliation, there's this, this concept of forgiveness, either interpersonal forgiveness or forgiveness for uh, members of the whole community where they agree that this is the, the truth about um, our community, the truth about our nation or our, our past. And we acknowledge that, but we're going to find ways to move beyond that and work together. So political reconciliation essentially involves um, different members of the community finding ways to work together um, and move forward after tension and conflict. I love it. Thank you for setting that context for us. And I think that's a great transition to uh, Maria, Amelia, you and I were having a conversation kind of in the lead up and the prep uh, for today's discussion. Um, you shared quite a bit about the extensive work that you've done in Colombia and other parts of Latin America, but you shared one story that uh, has kind of stuck with me, and I'm hoping you'd be comfortable sharing that with the group here, where you really kind of illustrate the difference between consensus and collaboration. So I wonder if you might help us to kind of define that, and if you don't mind sharing the story that we discussed uh, in our prep. Okay, so um, what what Gloria was just saying um, takes us to the to the level of humanity in the sense that reconciliation and collaboration after conflict are not intellectual processes, but mostly emotional processes. That's why forgiveness is such a, a fundamental, fundamental, but very difficult emotion to, or, or ability to reach, right? Forgiveness is something that really takes a lot of work. So um, I, what I, I wanted to, to share with you is a, an, an experience I've had, I had in 2019 where I had the privilege to, of participating in a, in a three-day meditation retreat that brought together individuals who participated in the Colombian conflict. So we had ex-combatants, we had members of the, of the army, guerrillas, paramilitaries, gang members from, you know, gang gangs. Uh, but we also had business people, we had victims, people who had suffered horrible things during, during the conflict. We also had social leaders, artists, ancestral leaders, entrepreneurs. So this was a really historical event, I think, because 70 people got together, you know, people from very diverse origins and, and worldviews. So obviously we came together to meditate for three days. And, and the purpose of the meeting was not to seek consensus or to achieve dialogue or, or even to, to, to promote trust among the, the participants. You know, the purpose was just to have the experience of sharing a living space. You know, we, we were sharing the dining rooms, the dishwashing, we had casual meetings, but we were there basically to meditate together for three days. This, this, this very unique event was called La Paz en Tus Ojos, which means peace in your eyes. 
And, and, it, and, it was, and it happened in a very symbolic place called San Rafael near Medellin in, in, in a, a little town in Colombia. And it is very symbolic because in that area, uh, horrible infamous acts of massacres of war had happened. So to have that uh, meditation meeting in that particular place was, was uh, specifically symbolic, you know? And, and I would say that it is, it is a very transformative experience and it is, I think, difficult to describe the, the profound impact of sharing several days with people in, in peace, you know, several sharing in peace, in meditation um, with people who, of whom you're most afraid and, and, and people you don't like, you don't trust, you don't want to be friends with them, you don't, you don't even want to see them again, probably. Um, but then you learn that you can be together, that you share this interest, this, this desire to find this in yourself, the ability to be together. This is very, very far from, from forgiveness. Forgiveness, I think it's a lot of work. It's, it's very psychological and it's a lot of personal work. But before forgiveness, I think it's really important for us to be able to, to learn to collaborate, you know, because we learn to compete. We learn to win, even from education, you know, very early on in education, you, you are the best in your class if you are better than your friends, right? So, but it is, you don't, we don't really learn to, to do things together with people whom we don't agree with which is, I think, the challenge of collaboration. Being able to act, even if we don't reach consensus in, in almost anything, but we reach this minimal consensus that allows us to act together. So this is just an example of a lot of experiences that we are doing here in Colombia. And many, many groups are promoting these kinds of experiences of sharing a meal, of parting bread together with people who have been your enemies, even your victimaries. Um, because I think that, and, and, and I would just end this by saying that we all need to learn because I'm, I'm speaking of, of a war with mortal enemies, obviously. But we also have personal situations in our daily lives. We see it, you see it in the US, you see it all over. Well, you cannot even talk to your friends or your family because you are separated by this polarization that forces you to think that you cannot be together uh, with people you don't agree with. So I think that this is a, a road that we all have to take to learn to, to collaborate, meaning to act together with people we don't like, we don't trust, or we don't agree with. Thank you for that. And thank you for sharing uh, that powerful example. Um, Aisha, I, I want to hear from you here. So you, you've done several peacekeeping missions in your uh, career and in your tenure, and you've seen a wide range of, you know, kind of the way that these situations can unfold in the pathway towards uh, reconciliation. So there's a lot of question, both in the chat and very broadly about how we even start if we can't agree on the, the, the basic facts. Like if, if we don't even find common ground around truth, how might we begin on the path towards reconciliation? So I wonder if you could give us some perspective about where do folks even start? How do you have some kind of uh, common ground around truth? 
And then what is the path towards reconciliation? Does that include reparations? Does that include other forms of sacrifice from one group or the other? Share with us your thoughts there. Thank you so much. Um, I'm glad to share um, from the Sierra Leone experience, but also across to my, um, my peacekeeping experience. Um, I, I mean, I take a lot of the emotional part from um, Maria's talk just now about reconciliation and, and collaboration. But I think from a human rights perspective, um, addressing um, human rights becomes the core of how you, we begin to acknowledge that everybody at the table is a human being. And whether, um, as Maria is saying, you're from different works of life, uh, or you suffer differently, the common ground or the place where everybody meets is that we're human beings and human rights helps us to define ourselves in that way and begin to see each other uh, as human beings. And, um, and in the United Nations, human rights is a core part of building peace um, and sustainable peace. And in conflict situations, we always try to ensure that peace intersects with justice and that justice looks at uh, the past uh, looks at all the crimes that have been committed, never tries to sweep anything under the rug, but um, sets out a comprehensive process of looking at the past, of accountability, of reconciliation, um, and ensures that everyone participates and develops a process that is contextualized in the society that they live, that takes into account women and sensitivities on children and makes sure that whatever transitional justice processes are established reflects the wrongs that have been done in society and sets out a pattern of redress for everyone, whether it's prosecution. Um, for example, in Sierra Leone, we had the special court which dealt with prosecutions. Not everybody agreed with that because they felt it was too expensive. Uh, in most countries, there's a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that will be set up, which tries to look at truth telling um, and truth seeking and allows um, uh, more people to be able to speak out on what happened, what their perspectives are in the, in the conflict, even if they didn't feel as if they were personally harmed. Um, and then a series of reparation programs, which is contextualized, whether it's from a gender perspective, respecting women's rights, um, it's particularly sexual and gender violence that may have occurred during those conflicts or tensions or crises. Um, this is a very big area that is being promoted by the United Nations now as part of transitional justice policies. And I believe the African Union has also um, endorsed some of these um, criteria. So there's a wide range of processes that, that, that are established to make sure that um, we can at the end be reconciled to each other, especially when addressing, um, you know, looking at the institutions of states that ha may have been part and parcel of violations of human rights. 
and making sure that we reform those institutions, taking into account discrimination, whether racial or otherwise, economic disparities, um, you know, as, as happens around the world, not only in the United States, um, but ensuring that peace and justice should be promoted as mutually reinforcing. Um, one cannot do without the other. And in many, many peace agreements, um, you know, mediators try to downplay the aspect of justice, but from a human rights perspective, um, they're mutually reinforcing and we're always trying to push that in order to get peace, sustainable peace, you have to deal with, um, with the harm that has been done. I mean, I give you an example of Liberia, for example, uh, when that was my first mission. And I recall that as an NGO working in Sierra Leone in those days, um, the conflict was so serious that, um, you know, uh, in one of the elections for, for Charles Taylor, people were campaigning and singing in the streets. He killed my mother and he killed my father, but I will vote for him. That was the level of fear and trepidation of, of the rebels. Yet, once the mission was established and peace and reconciliation and implementation of, of, of a peace agreement, we had to bring these parties together to work together to develop a transitional process that will address everybody's concerns. Um, and up till now, they're, they're trying to implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's recommendations, which, is, which takes a long time to do. I mean, there are institutional reforms, there are individuals who want reparations and institution and all of these um, compensation um, that are part and parcel of transitional justice. It's a long process, it's not an event. And uh, I'm happy to say that in Sierra Leone, uh, which is mentioned as one of the successful peacekeeping missions and, and um, re reconciliation, we've gone a long way in implementing um, the TRC recommendations. And so has Liberia. Um, I'm looking forward to see what Darfur will be like in the Sudan, but I think I'll leave it there for now and we'll answer some more questions later. Yes. Thank you, thank you. No, that's fantastic. Um, and, and I think it brings a great point to Dr. Aie, uh, Dr. Aie, I wanna pull you back uh, in on this one. So one of the concerns that I have and the concern that I think a lot of folks have is around information and getting quality information. Uh, there seems to be now more than ever, um, just a, pro a, pro a proliferation of uh, just bad information or you know not having good access to facts. How might we create better pathways to reliable and thoughtful information? And what role might we play uh, in ensuring that folks are able to make thoughtful decisions based on facts? That's an excellent question. What often happens in um, our societies is that people become part of information silos. So they seek out information that basically reinforces the beliefs that they all already have. So what you would have, for example, is if you hold a specific political ideology, you will gravitate towards um, information sources that reinforce that ideology. Um, in the United States, for example, we've seen that um, really happen over the past few years, especially with um, the political divisiveness becoming so terrible because of the way that people gain their information and 
misinformation that results from that as well. So what we have to do is think of this process of reconciliation, community building um, in different steps. So we would have reconciliation at the national level, which would involve our political leaders, our um, elected officials. We have it at the um, community level, which involves people coming together as part of um, smaller local communities and then at the individual level. We have to think about information transfer in these three separate dimensions. So having conversations with people that are in your small bubble, your coworkers, um, people that may be part of um, religious organizations that you are part of, schools, educational institutions, jobs, transferring information from one person to another because you have direct access to those individuals is um, a way to help dispel misinformation. So maybe you have a friend who somewhat trusts you because they're your friend and they hold a specific type of worldview um, and they gain information from very specific sources. You could find a way to bridge the gap by having discussions with them, being open to listening to their point of view, which would make them open to listening to your point of view. And you can share things that they may otherwise not have access to in terms of in information. And that way we're able to at least get um, access to information that we may not otherwise have had because we are, we all tend to kind of seek information, like I said, that reinforces our own beliefs. So if you think of it from that, that um, perspective, that's one way of, of um, tackling the, the spread of um, misinformation. Then also we have to find ways to hold our media institutions accountable for the way in which they spread information. These days we have social media and so everyone um, can just go on online and post whatever they feel is appropriate. People can publish unsubstantiated um, reports on their personal blogs, which um, many people will just take as, as fact. Um, even our traditional media organizations, um, the mainstream media, um, news organizations, um, television, um, cable channels um, have, have planted more towards um, opinion-based news reporting rather than factual-based. And so if as a society, we, we kind of demand more um, from these media organizations and then also take it upon ourselves to kind of look out to make sure that the information that we are provided um, is actually factual, then it helps to kind of um, address these issues of, of misinformation that um, can really create um, really difficult problems in our, our society, as we see with the spread of conspiracy theories and um, really harmful um, um, knowledge that, that causes further divisiveness. So if we think about ways in which we connect, can connect on the interpersonal level and then find ways to hold those in power um, accountable for the, the information they are spreading, then that kind of helps to, to um, better our society in that regard. Got it. Thank you for that. And, and so, Maria Emilia, I think you bring a unique perspective. You self-identify as an entrepreneur. 
as a person in business, but you bring your values to the way you approach business, advocating for B Corps. Talk a little bit about uh, how you as a person who's not formally a part of the political kind of institution, how you feel like you're able to use your platform or your passions to advocate for the type of society that you think values uh, all who are part of it. Thank you, Ryan. So I, I, I would like to bring the example of what's happening in Chile. Chile is my second home. I, I spent half of the, when I used to travel, I used to spend half of my time in Chile and half of my time in Colombia. Who knows now what I'm going to be doing, but Chile is also my home. And um, so Chile was considered an example all around the world of a country that was coming out of the very strong dictatorship and for 20 or 30 years built a model of development that was uh, considered extraordinary all around the world. And it was a very peaceful and, and, and advanced society, a, a model to look for all over the world. And all of a sudden, October 19, 2019, social unrest erupted unexpectedly. And it was almost, you know, to the level of, of very complicated civil unrest. You know, it was looking like civil war. People were going to the streets to, to destroy, to, to put fire to churches, to, I mean, it was, it, it, and it took, this social unrest took everyone by surprise. And it was really unexplainable because this country that had reduced poverty, all the like the objective measures that economists look for, reduction of poverty, better health, better, home, uh, life conditions, quality of life and education and so on had improved enormously, enormously. However, people were very, very upset, so upset that they went out to the streets and, and, and it was, they were combating in the streets. So facing this very, and, and so that this, this surprising situation, what has happened that is fascinating is that all around the country, many people are organizing themselves to create spaces for dialogue. So there is a fascinating example called Tenemos que hablar de Chile, which means let's, we must talk about Chile. That because of the pandemic became an online platform that has promoted dialogue over for thousands and thousands of people all over the country. So what they, what they do is you sign in the, in the platform and you're invited to this small conversation a five, six people group uh, with a facilitator. You don't know who's coming. And then you end up finding people who you certainly mostly, maybe you certainly it's very improbable that you would meet them, but also most, most many times you find people you don't want to meet, you know? And these dialogues have happened, are happening all around the country. Thousands of people have had this experience of having a personal humane, human to human conversation where they can explain what they think and people, the other people we listen to or the other people listen to them. And the purpose is not to find an agreement. The purpose is just to have the, the, the dialogue, the, the, the experience of a conversation. It's been a fascinating experience that happened all during the, 20, the year, 20, last, last year, 2020. And for 2021, the goal is to reach 5 million people in the country with conversations that bring uh, objects of conversation 
into the conversations themselves, further to what people think that the groups are offering ideas in order to bring the conversation to the long term. Because one of the problems we have is that these conversations are normally very much tied into, into what's happening right now. And very much tied to politics in the sense that we don't want this president or we don't want this major or we don't want this politician or whatever, very personalized. So when you take these conversations to the future, what is Chile going to be like in, in 15 years, in 2035? Let's talk about that. that that, that way that, that oh, like raises the level of the conversation and brings the invitation for all of us to become good ancestors. Because what we do today is what is going to build the, 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 the countries, the societies and the communities where we live in 2035, right? And there's also a very fascinating process. I might, I might I'm just going to conclude here, right? I'm sorry I'm taking so much time, but it, I think it's a very interesting experience because this country that came out of a horrible dictatorship had 30 years, years of democracy and all of a sudden again this complication they said okay let's change the constitution because it's probably the rules of the game need to be rethought and it's amazing to see that there was a vote and the country went out to vote and 85 percent of people voted to redefine the constitution. So now we're in a constitutional process to redefine the rules of the game in a collaborative process. So I think it's a beautiful example of civil society, government, uh, business people, entrepreneurs, everyone working together for the love of their country, not necessarily to be able to, you know, gain power one over the other, but just to say, you know, we have to live together. Let's change the rules of the game because obviously inequality is horrible and, and, and there's a lot of explanations, valid explanations for what happened in October in 2019. Let's change that, but let's change them together through an institutional process of constitutional reform. I think that under, you have two levels of this conversation, which this very, the political polarization that is so strong and this violent language that it, it builds anger in everyone. And then underneath, there's like an undercurrent of normal people, everyday human beings who, who don't want to live in that kind of polarization. And, and that's the consequence, you know, those dialogues are showing this like undercurrent that is fascinating. So you ask me, what is an entrepreneur doing this? Well, this is what entrepreneurs do. You know, we, we, we normally think of entrepreneurs of, you know, people who make a lot of money uh, building companies which is also a way to be an entrepreneur. But fortunately, sure. in the last 10 years, we have a lot of entrepreneurs who know that they can put themselves to the service of the solution of the problems of the world. And that's what Big yeah. Course and others are doing. So many gems there, I loved it. Uh, I wrote <laughs> the note, the opportunity to become good ancestors. That to me is such a powerful um, concept. I wanna bring Ladarian in here to march us through a couple of the audience questions. Uh, Ladarian, maybe let's start with uh, that question we exchanged uh, for Aisha. Perfect, thanks Ryan. Um, this is a great conversation. It looks like a lot of the questions that we have in the chat deal with the process, right? Like what, what comes first? What do you do first um, in order for reconciliation to happen? So I'm gonna kick this question over to Aisha first, but one of the questions was, 
Are there um, steps that should be taken before forgiveness is offered? Or does this need to be the starting point? And are the responsibilities different if there are power imbalances? So I think, um, you know, forgiveness is very much an important part of reconciliation, but I think people are curious to know, is that where you start? Or do you start with, you know, truth commissions first? So Aisha, I'm gonna to toss it to you and then the other speakers would love for you all to join in as well. Thank you so much. Um, I think that reconciliation is the result that we come from addressing the truth, telling and commissions. Um, I mean, in fact, it's, it's the, the result of being able to bring the different voices and both the, the um, um, in, in the case of, of Sierra Leone, Liberia, or any of the conflict areas where I've worked, the, the rebels that we will call them, the rebels and the society at large together to share, um, whether in the form of, um, of, of a TRC um, in, in Sierra Leone, that was one, one way of doing it. And reconciliation comes much to the towards the end. It's not a first step. Um, they were having in Liberia, for example, while we were designing all of these uh, processes, there were already conversations happening in the communities about what had happened. How did we get here? And then in informal processes, traditional ways. So there are all these sort of pockets, but what you want to do is try and consolidate them into a formal process that will, you will end up having a proper reconciliation. That is, and then if you have an intervention like the UN, whether it's in a peacekeeping setting or maybe a political setting, um, what mediators and others will try to do is try and ensure that at the institutional level, there are conversations happening. At the group levels, civil society levels, there are conversations happening and they're bringing women, they're bringing religious leaders, they're bringing all the stakeholders to all of these group discussions to be able to um, um, bring the ideas that are emerging from these little conversations into formal processes that are being set up, whether it's the transitional process that we want in a TRC format or whether we, we want a prosecution um, so that you can then um, bring all the ideas to the different elements of the process. Um, it, as long as they're grounded on restoring human dignity to the communities, to indiv individuals, they follow um, international norms and standards. They, are, they become mutually reinforcing as we go along. Um, you have to choose based on your political context. You have to choose your elements based on your country context. Um, in, in Sierra Leone, for example, there was a lot of agitation about, you know, bringing the rebels to justice for all what, what had happened. Um, but the majority of us, women's groups in particular, um, pushed for um, the TRC because we felt that whilst people were angry about, you know, bringing them to prosecution and all of that, there was no way the system would be able to deal with everything. And similar discussions happen in Rwanda, if you follow the Rwanda process, it was just impossible. And so TRC, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, becomes one of the, um, the processes that most countries will say, okay, 
I think this one we're able to do. I mean, it will be combined with in Rwanda, they had what they call the gachacha system, which was a traditional way of dealing with, you know, forgiveness and all of that. But it also had an acknowledgement of what happened, a confession, and then this community forgives you. So it depends on context. It depends on the political system. It also depends on the capacity in the country because the international community will try to support the country to do what it has to do. But you also have to see if they have the capacity and to design a process that takes into account the capacity in the country and what assistance can be given by the international community. Bearing in mind that you cannot have a process that sort of tries to implant other systems because you in the country, the people in the country have to design what's good for them, not the international community and not anyone else. Otherwise, it is, does not become grounded, it does not become sustainable, um, and you might not have the capacity to deal with what you, you, you want to achieve in the end of the day. And that's how you achieve reconciliation towards the end, it must be grounded on addressing um, the crimes that have been committed, the violations that have been, and promises that there will not be a, a repetition and making sure that the institutions that you formulate thereafter becomes reformed to, in order to transform the system, so to transform right. individuals. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Thank you for that. Being mindful of time, Ryan, I'm going to ask one more question to the speakers. Um, so I think everyone is also really curious about what you all's perspectives are on the US um, and what we're going through now here. But one question popped up in the chat that's really interesting and people are interested to know how one can I think US American citizens come to bridge the gap between the communities, but also how might we lean on immigrant communities as well. Um, you know, a lot of them may have fled their countries because of political um, instability and come to the U.S. and now find themselves in a similar situation. So we'll love you all's perspective um, a minute or two on how we can bridge the gap with different communities and bring in diasporas as well here in the U.S. I will uh, tackle that question really quickly. Um, the, the latter part about um, uh, members of the diaspora um, being involved in these types of processes. Uh, a really great example is um, the work of um, the advocate, the advocates, which is an organization here in the the U.S. that really assisted with um, formally and um, assisting Liberians in the diaspora to work with their um, truth and reconciliation process. And so that's a really great example if, if folks are interested in looking more into um, how that played out. Um, but I want to shift a little bit to the US context and things that we have been seeing um, in the news uh, lately, so in the, in the past year, but then also the long history of systemic racism and injustice that has plagued the United States. And I think it would be um, really unfortunate if we don't uh, speak to that um, uh, at least quite a bit um, in today's conversation. So the question about how to tackle reconciliation in this um, current moment is really one that has been um, at the forefront of, of conversations in, in the last couple of months. 
So of course, in 2020, we see um, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, at the same time, we see this um, really strong social movement, the protests that started um, in response to issues of police brutality, which of course um, have been a really big and important part of US history, but then those, all, those protests also kind of moved on to um, other parts of the world. So it became kind of a global movement against um, systemic injustice, racism, and police brutality. So what we have to do when we're thinking about how we move forward um, in terms of, of what we've been witnessing is think about our history in the United States and the marginalization and oppression of um, minority groups and um, how that has not been addressed at all. It is time for us to actually begin to have serious conversations about how this country was founded and the system and institution of slavery, why it was um, such a huge part of this nation's founding. Um, after, the, um, after slavery was um, kind of dissolved as an institution, the um, establishment of Jim Crow laws um, and once those were um, also dissolved, the persistence of systemic and institutional racism and inequality that has affected marginalized um, communities, brown and black people. Because we have not really taken the time as a country to really have the difficult discussions about what the truth of our history is, these problems persist. Um, of course, there are different elements that um, um, stakeholders, people who hold power, who are seeking to maintain that power and so kind of fight against creating a society that's equitable for all. But it's really important for us to actually take time to have these difficult conversations about what the, the country really is. Um, and the, the, the system of white supremacy that is actually um, still really in effect. Um, and so in order to move forward, we, we have to look, look critically at the soul of the nation and um, have these difficult conversations. That's the place to start. And while we may talk about forgiveness, we also have to think about justice and accountability. It's a, it's a difficult conversation to have, but it's one that we must all participate in. <clears throat> Such a power, please go ahead, Aisha. Yes, I was just, just going to say, I mean, in doing this work for the last 15, 20 years um, around the world, it was interesting to, to be in America and to realize that even though Americans support and push um, peace and reconciliation around the world and supported through humanitarian work uh, and promote themselves as leaders of human rights. Uh, it was shocking to me to learn that in fact, they have not dealt with their violations of human rights over the years. Hence, it has persisted exactly as you say it, um, uh, you know, that you know the, the the high commissioner for human rights throughout 
my, my work in the UN, I've always said there isn't a perfect nation, there isn't a perfect country. All countries have human rights concerns and those human rights concerns must be dealt with. Otherwise you can never have uh, peace, sustainable peace, and you'll never have um, a, a reconciliation. And I see it so clearly in the American example. Um, we have to go, in my view, America needs to go back and look at these things. Um, the George Floyd situation did not just emerge. It's related to root causes. And those root causes are racial discrimination, economic discrimination, and all of those issues that luckily you have institutions, you have some very strong institutions, things will not fall apart, um, but you need to go back and look at those things. And it's not, it's not looking down on, on the United States when we say you've got to go back to the United Nations and learn from the examples that they have learned Absolutely. over these 75 years of doing this right. work in the world. Come back to them and say, we formed the United Nations. We didn't realize that we had not followed <laughs> the Universal Declaration right. of Human Rights, <laughs> you know? Um, what we now think that you have experts and all over the world who can come and, and speak frankly with us. You know, this business of truth telling, it's, it's right there at the political level and at the individual and group levels. So my, my um, <laughs> 10 cents into this conversation about the US is that the tools are right there. It's just right. political exigencies to, to play their part for, and the communities are very strong. Um, are we going to do that um, is the question. Absolutely. We are, we're running up against time really quickly, two yep. quick things. So one, we took feedback from you all. There's going to be a part two of this conversation in February. So stay tuned for that. Uh, number two, I want to give each of the speakers to answer our kind of signature question of what's bringing you joy. So very quickly, and, and Maria Millie, I know you didn't get a chance to chime in. If you have maybe 30 seconds on that last question, and then I'd love to hear from each of you, what's the one thing that you're bringing from 2020 into 21 that's a source of joy or something that you're doing to create joy? So let's try to do all that in the next 60 seconds. Okay, so I'm just going to say that I totally agree with Aisha and Gloria, and I'm not going to say anything else because they said everything that needed to be said. I'm just going to say that the pandemic, I think, is teaching us the importance of interdependence. Nobody is going to save themselves alone. We are learning that we have to be to work together. Nobody here is going to be free of this pandemic on their own, so let's work together. That's like my last message. So should I go to what gives me happy? Yes, please, absolutely. What, what gives me more happiness is my twin grandchildren who turned <laughs> one year old on September 31st and who live in Philadelphia and who have gone through all these situations that you've heard. And that's why I'm particularly interested to have a United States that go back to the core of what you are and find the strength of who you are to be able to, to build a better world for the future. Love it. Aisha, what about you? What's bringing you joy these days? What's bringing me joy is I've started a podcast, um, in, um, <laughs> which is um, Women Move Africa. Um, I want the women of Africa to tell their oral history of what's happening. And we want to really 
promote what's happening in Africa. And I hope that this year I'll be able to do a lot of that work, including supporting Love Somalia. It. <laughs> Love it. You'll have to send us a link that we can share with folks to check out the podcast. Will do. Will do. Thank you. Dr. Ayi, what about you? What's bringing you joy these days? Uh, there are a couple of things that bring me joy. Um, one is um, interacting with my students who are so eager to learn and so eager to change the world. So knowing that there is hope for the future because um, the, the next generation of leaders are so invested in equality and um, justice for all. So that brings me joy. And then the other thing that brings me joy is knowing that even with the dark days, there's always hope. So in history, we've seen really terrible times and we emerge from them. And so we can be hopeful that um, even as we face tough times now, um, there is a hope for a brighter future. So that keeps me going. I love it. Man, we, we kicked off uh, 2021 with a bang. Let's give our panelists a round of applause, please, for those who are still on the call. Thank you all for today's discussion. I know we've run a bit over time, but the music is important. So those who can stick around, feel free to enjoy uh, a mix from DJ Sofa. Uh, the, we put the recordings up every week on our website. So if you miss or you have to leave early, you can always go back and check them out. Uh, I'm excited about our 2021 roster for Tuesday Talks. With that said, thank you all for joining us. I missed you. DJ Sofa, over to you to do what you do. <laughs> Next.
Crossbody got a piece in it. Got a dance, but it's really on some street. I'ma show you how to get it. It go right foot up, left foot slide, left foot up, right foot slide. Basically, I'm saying either way, we bout to slide. Hey, can't let this one slide. Hey. Don't you wanna dance with me? No, I could dance like Michael Jackson. I could get you the passion. It's a thriller in a trap. Where we from? Baby, don't you wanna dance with me? No, I could dance like Michael Jackson. I could get you satisfaction. And you know we out here every day with it. I'ma show you, 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 I'ma show you. kick off 2021 uh i appreciate y'all this is such a great conversation i know we ran a little long today but uh it was worth every extra moment uh thanks for those who stuck around thank you to all of our amazing speakers thank you to dj sofa for always bringing the vibes every tuesday noon eastern uh we're here we've got a great 2021 plan hope to see y'all moving forward check out the website for the archive as well i think you'd enjoy some of the previous talks until we see you next week, enjoy your Tuesday. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll catch you all soon. Thanks, everyone.